In the end of ends, when the story of Earth is finally told, all that will be remembered will be the truth we've shared, the vulnerability we've experienced, and the love and care that we've dared to risk to give to another human being. In the end of ends, in the, in the final days of the Earth, when the Earth's story is finally told, all that will remain is the truth, and the vulnerable experiences, and the love and care we've dared to give to another human being. Those are the words of Donald Miller from his book, Scary Close. He goes on to say that our anxieties and insecurities will fade and flicker away like a television being turned off. All that remains is the truth, the vulnerable relationships, and the love that we've shared. We don't have to wait until the end of the world to experience this truth. We don't have to wait until the end of our own lives. We can discover it through the spiritual way that we live. I believe that all of us are spiritual beings to one degree or another, regardless of what you believe or, or don't believe, and our spirituality can often reveal deep truths to us. Do you know how you evaluate someone's spirituality, by the way? You don't evaluate it by their ability to spontaneously pray over the family meal. It's not a bad thing, but that's not how you evaluate them. You don't evaluate them by their ability to, to describe the great mysteries of theology and philosophy and bring it all into simple and clear understanding. A nice skill to have, but you can't define their spirituality in that way. Nor do you rate someone or evaluate someone's spirituality by their ability to stand in front of a group of people and, and deliver a sermon. No. No, no, and no. You define someone's spirituality by the words that are spoken when that one's being laid to rest for the final time. We begin, to, we begin to understand that person's spirituality when in the eulogy, when the words that are spoken as we gather at their graveside or as we stand next to the niche where their, where their ashes will be placed, that's the moment we understand and learn about their lives. It's what David Brooks calls the, the difference between two eras in our life. The early era of our life is resume building, when we're trying to earn degrees and get the right job, make enough money, award, achieve some uh, awards and, and such. Nothing wrong with those things, but somewhere along the way we suddenly shift and we realize that we want to build our eulogy. We spend the early days building our resume. The second half of our life is building our eulogy. I first discovered this truth in a book called Youth and the Future of the Church. It was written by Michael Warren. I read it in the, in the summer just before I began to attend seminary, nearly 40 years ago. I bought the book thinking it would be full of ideas and lessons for youth ministry. I was going to be working as a youth worker while I was in seminary at a church in, in Tennessee, but it was anything but that. Instead, it was a deeply spiritual and theological reflection on death and spirituality through the lens of youth ministry, a book that haunts me to this day. It seemed unusual when I first read it that he would focus so much on spirituality and death in a book about youth ministry, but I've discovered since then that the two groups in the church that pay the most attention to death are, you can guess the first one, older adults and teenagers. Death has a way of sharpening the point, doesn't it? Death has a way of, of getting our attention about what matters the most in life but what we want to focus on the most and, and understand at a clearer and deeper level. I've seen the truth of this idea from Michael Warren's book, from David Brooks's column on, on how the eulogy speaks 
to the spirituality of the person that's being laid to rest. During the last few weeks, I've been involved in a number of memorial services. Some I've led, some I've, I've participated in. I'm thinking of one in particular today. It was a woman who had lived well into her 90s. I met with one of her daughters on the day before the service to learn more about her mother, to hear stories about her life and her loves and her losses and griefs, that sort of thing. It was a marvelous conversation. I learned so much about the woman. I, I knew I would have more than enough to, to write a meditation for her the next day. But then the daughter, she took a deep breath, sort of gathered herself, and she said, I want you to know something. Mom and dad, her, her dad had died a few years before. Mom and dad rarely spoke of their faith. They rarely talked about church. They were faithful members of First Community. They attended every Sunday they were in town. They were involved in a couple circle and other projects and mission services and all, all the rest. But they rarely talked about it. Instead, they just lived their faith. You could see their faith in the way they loved each other, in the way they loved their children, in the way they loved their, their family and friends. I shared that story the next day in the meditation. And then I quoted words from St. Francis. You've probably heard them before. They're, they're rather well known. It's St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. It sounds like a cliche. Maybe you've heard it before. But we say it over and over and over again because it is true. I also quoted similar words from a poet and a journalist from the last century. His name was Edgar Guest. He began one of his poems saying, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Death sharpens the point, doesn't it? It makes it clear about what matters the most, about the things that are most important in your life. There's a church in Thessalonica in the year 50 AD that receives a letter from the Apostle Paul and this is probably the oldest document in the New Testament. It's a window, as it were, into the theology and faith of the earliest Christians. These folks in Thessalonica firmly and sincerely believed that Jesus was returning at any moment. His return was imminent. The Apostle Paul believed this as well. You can find this scattered throughout the various letters that he wrote to churches around the Mediterranean area. They believed sincerely and honestly and hopefully that Jesus would return soon to gather all of, the, of his sheep together to take them into the presence of God. And yet here we are now. It's 20 years after the resurrection. 20 years after Jesus was on earth. 20 years later, he's not returned. And to make things more difficult for them, they've lost many friends and family members in the church. And there's a sincere worry and fear in the congregation about what will happen to those who've died. When Jesus comes back to bring all, all of us into God's presence, will they be left behind? Will, will they be forgotten to the dustbin of, of, of history? What will happen to them? Now pause there for a moment. There's a temptation, and I've given in to this temptation before. There's a temptation here to say, well, those naive Thessalonians, thank, thank goodness our theology is so much more advanced. Thank goodness we, we're, we're so much, much clearer about our faith and what we believe and don't believe and understand and how naive of them to think that somehow Jesus was coming back just for them and they were going to be gathered. That's so silly. Now, I, I confess, I've done that before. And if it sounds arrogant, it's because it is. It's an arrogant thing to do. Imagine, for example, how our theology 
our political ideology, our philosophy will sound 2,000 years from now. I pray to God every day that 2,000 years from now, no one will read my sermons. Trust me on that. So we instead want to look at them through the lens of what's happening in their church. They've got this sincere belief that Jesus could return any time, and there's grief and worry and fear and anxiety at work among the people in the congregation. Paul says to them, remember, Jesus will come back like a thief in the night. Now that sounds like a negative image, like a frightening one. If you've ever been robbed, you know it's frightening. Julie and I were robbed once while we were both away at work. It was in our house in San Diego. I was up in Orange County for a conference. She'd gone to work for the day. She came home first, though, picked up our son from daycare. He was only about six months old, walked into the house. Nate immediately began to cry, and Julie looked around and saw that there was stuff dumped everywhere. All the, all the drawers in the kitchen had been dumped out. All the drawers and the dressers down the hallway in the bedrooms had been dumped out and tossed around. The, the closets were emptied. It was a very frightening moment. That's not what Paul's trying to evoke from them, though. Instead, he's using it in a positive way. You don't know when a thief might come. You don't know when a thief might show up in the middle of the night. Therefore, don't spend any time worrying about that. Instead, turn on the light. That's how you get dressed for the end of the world, Paul is saying. Turn on the light first. Turn on the light that is your, your salvation. Turn on the light that the old ancient psalmist saw as well as a way to guide us down our pathway through this world. We are not children of the darkness. We're not children of misunderstanding. We are children of the light, he's saying to them. It's an encouraging and hope-filled word. Did you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote Jesus, all three of them quote Jesus saying something similar? No one knows. No one knows. Don't spend any time worrying about that. Instead, live your lives now, today, in this moment, with love, mercy, and grace at the center of who you are. Earlier in that same text, did you catch this phrase as Sarah read it? It was in quotes. Some will say there is peace and security. Peace and security. It's a political slogan. It's a Roman political slogan. Yes, Paul brought politics into church. It was a well-known phrase around the Roman Empire, around the, the Mediterranean world. The Romans were well-known for five decades now for saying, peace and security, we brought peace and security. We brought peace and security. Shouldn't you admire us? And Paul is saying to his congregation, no, because that peace has come at the tip of a spear figuratively and sometimes literally pressed into our chests. The Romans are pressing that spear into our chest saying, you want peace and security? Then you will live the way we tell you to live. It's not peace. It's not security. It's oppression, period. Paul is saying that peace, that security does not define who we are. We are defined as people of the light. We are people who want to follow in the light of Christ's, in the light of Christ's love, grace and mercy, whatever direction it takes us down the pathway we find in life. Think about their world. There were wars and rumors of wars. There were earthquakes and erupting volcanoes. There was fear and anxiety on every street corner. It was a mess. But you know what? We could change the date of the letter from 50 to 2023 and it would speak to us. Think of the unholiness of the Holy Land right now. How awful 
and terrible it is. Think of the terrible oppressive attack <clears throat> by the Russians on the Ukrainians. Think of all the fear that there is in the world in many places that at any moment violence could erupt. I, I can't prove this, what I'm about to say in any way, but it just feels to me, it feels to me right now in this moment as though we're on the edge of violence erupting worse than we've ever seen in the United States or seen for 150 years. It just has that sense of fear hanging over us like a dark rain cloud ready to erupt. Peace and security Paul says to us, Jesus says to us, God says to us, in this moment, don't let outside forces control who you are. Don't let the outside ones tell you how you are to believe or how you are to think. Instead, be framed by the mind of Christ, by the light of salvation, by the goodness of grace, mercy, and love. You know, sometimes, not very often, but a few times in my almost 40 years of ministry now, I'll have someone say along the way, you preach the Bible too much. You preach the Bible too much. We need more relevant, relevant servants. Usually in my mind, I don't say this out loud, but usually in my mind, I think to myself, like my southern friends say, well, bless your heart. Because I think the Bible, frankly, speaks to the world. Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite theologians, says the Bible presents a counter-narrative. The world presents the, the control through, through violence and worse, and the Bible presents a counter-narrative to that, a narrative that is built on love and grace, hope and, and faith. We, we sometimes think we have to think, uh, we, we see the world through this military-industrial complex, or we see the world through uh, all-consuming consumerism, and instead Paul invites us to consider the world in a much different way, to not let the voices of hatred control who we are. And let's look at our world honestly. Let's look at our country honestly. The voices of hatred, voices of, of, of dishonesty, voices of fear-mongering are in and among us and all around us. But we are not defined. We are not defined by someone else's hatred, by someone else's dishonesty. We are defined by the one in whose name we follow. The great black theologian, Howard Thurman, faced tremendous racism and bigotry in his life. But he wrote in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that Jesus turned away from hatred because he knew hatred was death to the heart, death to the mind, death to the spirit, death to our communion with God. Well, how do we do this? How do we turn away from those things and allow Jesus' way to be our way? Well, I think we need to reframe it. We need to reframe how we approach the world. I read about that this week in Edwin Freeman's book. Friedman is a, is a brilliant rabbi and psychiatrist. He tells the story of a, of a young mother who was very frustrated with her children. She'd spent years trying to get them to do their homework, to study for their tests, to do their reading, to get things done on time, and she had no success whatsoever, constantly nagging at them, chirping at them, harping after them to get it done, get it done, get it done, and their grades are less than average, below average, less than they should be able to do. She knows they're smart and intelligent, and she just frustrated them until one day she has a realization. So she calls the kids into the kitchen. They all sit down around the table, and she says, look, I've just realized, if you don't go to college, I'm going to save a lot of money. So from now on, 
I'm no longer going to harp at you or chirp at you or nag at you to get your work done, to study for your tests or to do your, your reading. No more. In fact, if I do, if I say anything to you about your schoolwork, you can find me one dollar. You find me one dollar. Amazingly, her kids' grades went up. Also, she'd had this nagging back pain in her lower back for years, couldn't figure out the source of it. Mysteriously, it went away. She said to Dr. Friedman, I've been trying to motivate my kids. Instead, I reframed it and focused on what I could regulate about myself, and I became the mother that they needed. When we look at ourselves and reframe our lives in light of the teaching we already know. We don't have to come to the end of the world. We don't have to come to the end of our lives. We can truly be transformed, reframed through the power and the goodness of grace, mercy, and love. And as we do, as we make our way down that path, as we walk in the very footsteps of Jesus himself, we will indeed be transformed, and we will hear echoing across the valleys and from the sides of the mountains and all around the world. We'll hear echo those words from the Gospel of John. The light has come into the world, and the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.